We are continuing our sermon series on the doctrine of the church. And this morning we are considering baptism and the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, what I hope that you will see in this sermon series is that we are contending for Christ's design and purpose for the church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. In Colossians 1.18, we read that Jesus is the head of the church. In Acts 20.28, we see that Jesus bought the church with his own blood. As followers of Jesus, it is good for us to look to God's word, to understand Christ's design and purpose for the church. We honor him as we seek to understand and apply the scriptures in regards to the church. Studying the biblical teaching on the church is also a matter of discipleship. Having a biblical understanding of the church helps us follow Jesus. Everyone who trusts in Christ is a disciple of Christ. And what we see in scriptures is that following Christ necessarily involves participating in a local church with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so digging into scripture to better understand and apply the biblical teaching on the church will help us make stronger disciples and provide a more compelling witness to our community. So far in our series, we have seen that the English word church is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia. And that word ekklesia means assembly, as in people assembled together. And in the New Testament, we see two kinds of assemblies. We see one, which is the heavenly assembly, which we refer to as the universal church. And this includes everyone who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has been born again, repenting of their sins, believing in Jesus Christ. The universal church is every believer throughout the world from every generation. And in one sense, everyone who belongs to Christ is already seated with him in the heavenly places. Because we are united to Christ by faith, we are united to him in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Those who have been united to Christ are already seated with him by virtue of our faith. We don't see this, but we can appreciate this by faith. And those who belong to the universal church, those who are seated with Christ in the heavenly assembly, are meant to gather in local assemblies. And this is the other way the New Testament speaks of the church or the use of the word ecclesia. It refers to local assemblies, local churches, specific defined groups of baptized believers who assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, agreeing on the gospel, affirming one another's confessions of faith in Jesus Christ, loving one another in the way that Christ has commanded, accountable to one another in the way that Christ has commanded. The universal church shows up, is made visible on earth in local churches. And the word, that word ecclesia more often refers to local churches in the New Testament. 
And we also, we've also seen that a local church is made up of its members. How do we define a local church? Who is a local church? Is it anyone who might show up to a particular gathering? Well, no. A local church is a defined group of believers, and membership brings that definition into focus. Who is a local church? Who makes up a local church? Well, it's the members, those who have agreed with one another on the gospel, on what is a right confession of Jesus, those who have committed themselves to one another, and those to whom uh, they are accountable to one another, and who agree to follow a specific group of leaders. So we see that membership is this relationship whereby an individual believer makes a self-conscious commitment. I am a follower of Jesus, and I agree with this church and how they preach the gospel, and I'm going to commit myself to this church and be accountable to this church. And it's also the self-conscious commitment of the church to say, yes, we affirm that this is a brother or sister in Christ. We affirm your confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also take responsibility for you and your walk with Christ. And so it's a Self-conscious commitment on behalf of the individual believer and on behalf of the local church. That's what makes a person a member. That's our biblical understanding of membership. When we understand membership in this way, we see that it's not a man-made idea. It's not a man-made idea. It's Christ's design for the local church. And we want to wholeheartedly embrace his design and his purpose for the local church to glorify him, to make strong disciples and provide a compelling witness to the world. We've also seen that Jesus, who is the head of the church, gives authority to local churches to render judgments on behalf of heaven regarding the who and the what of the gospel. Jesus gives his authority to local assemblies to render judgments on behalf of heaven. Yes, this is the right gospel. Yes, that is a right confession. Yes, this brother or sister is a right confessor. Think about this. Jesus, the head of the church, to whom has been given all authority, gives his authority to local assemblies to render judgments on behalf of heaven. Who speaks on behalf of Jesus on earth? It's local churches, local assemblies of believers. This also speaks to the importance of membership. Well, who has that authority to speak on behalf of Jesus? Who has the responsibility to exercise that authority in a way that honors and glorifies him? Well, that would be the members of local churches, those who agree on the gospel and gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are committed and accountable to one another to walk in a, in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Who exercises this authority that Jesus has given to local assemblies? The members of local churches. What we've also seen is that throughout church history, churches and Christians have understood the importance of membership for every believer. We've seen this in specific examples as well as confessions and creeds. And one of the ones I've shared comes from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which has been one of the most influential Baptist confessions of faith for the last several hundred years. In that confession, we read, as all believers are 
bound to join themselves to particular churches when and where they have opportunity so to do, so all that are admitted under the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof according to the rule of Christ. So Christians and churches and traditions have understood that believers are bound to join themselves to particular local churches where they are committed and accountable to one another. It's not merely a good idea. It's a command of Christ for every believer. And this morning we are going to consider the role of baptism and the Lord's Supper in the life of a local church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances or sacraments of the church. And while there's much to be said about these two ordinances, we are going to look at Scripture to get a sense of their meaning and what role they play in the life of a believer in the life of the church. And so we'll consider three questions. What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? And how do they relate to membership in a local church? So what is baptism? At the end of Matthew's gospel, we read about one of the instances when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ spoke with his disciples before his ascension. And in that conversation, he gave them a job. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage is often referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus commissioned his disciples to carry out his purposes in the world. In other words, he gave them a mission and authorized them to carry out the mission throughout the world. We also, what we also understand from this passage is that he not only gave this mission to the disciples, but to the whole church. And we know this from the language that he used here. He said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, of course, the disciples died, but the mission of the church continued on. Jesus promised his authoritative presence to be with his church to the end of the age. Just as Jesus said that his authoritative presence would be with local churches who are authorized to render judgments on behalf of heaven, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, so too his authoritative presence is with the disciples and ultimately the church to make disciples of all nations. As all authority on heaven and on earth is given to him, Jesus authorized his disciples, who were the apostles, to make disciples by baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. In this passage, the command is not given to those who are baptized, but to those who do the baptizing. Who is authorized 
to baptize. Well, he authorized his disciples to baptize. He authorized his disciples to make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And we would say, just as he gave his authority to Peter and to the apostles to exercise the keys of the kingdom, to bind and to loose, to render judgments on behalf of heaven, so too he also gave that authority to the church to bind and to loose, to render authority, uh, to render judgments on behalf of, of heaven. So too, just as he gave this authority to his disciples to make, disciple, uh, to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teach them to observe all that he has commanded, so too he has given that authority to the church. And oftentimes we see this taking place by a single representative acting on behalf of the church. And so the Great Commission is to be carried out by disciples of Jesus in local churches with whom is Jesus' authoritative presence. Baptism is a church's act and normally takes place in the context of a local church. Are there exceptions to this? Yes, of course. We see examples, exceptions to this, for example, in the book of Acts. What we see in the book of Acts is the gospel beginning to spread to different cities and different geographic regions. We see the gospel begin to spread to places where there was no gospel presence previously, where there were no local churches. As the gospel spreads, as it advances, as more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, people are baptized before the local church is established because someone has to be baptized. Someone has to start a local church. And so we see this, for example, with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Holy Spirit told Philip, you need to go here. And so he went there. And then he directed him to a particular uh, chariot where the eunuch was reading the, the book of Isaiah. And then Philip was able to share the gospel with him. And the, he responded by repenting and believing and was baptized. And he, ended up, he was on his way, think of this, to a place where there was no church. If Philip did not baptize him, who would baptize him? Someone had to be baptized to start a church. And so we see examples in these missionary contexts where the, the gospel is going out to these frontline places where people are baptized before local churches are started. And that's a good thing. Praise God for that. But normally, in the context of a local church where a local church is established, and a Christian or someone comes to faith in the context where a local church is established, then normally in those contexts, baptism takes place in the context of that local church. The local church possessing the authority of Jesus to render judgments on behalf of heaven. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This happened on the day of Pentecost with these people who came to faith in Christ in Jerusalem. And what do we see here in this context where there was a church, they were baptized and added, added to what? To the church in Jerusalem. How do we know this? Because what we read in verses uh, 42 where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Those who were baptized were added to the church the fellowship of the church, the Lord's Supper. We see that these things normally go together. 
Those who are baptized are added and thus participate in the fellowship of the church. Listen to the teaching of the word. Partake of the Lord's Supper. And so we see that normally baptism is the act of a church to affirm this person is a brother or sister in Christ. We affirm their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But of course in baptism, there are two parties involved. The one doing the baptizing and the one being baptized. And who gets baptized? Disciples of Jesus. On the one hand, baptism is an act of the church. And on the other hand, it is an act of a disciple or believer in Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples like tongues of fire. And the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in other tongues so that crowds from different parts of the world could understand them in their own language. It was an extraordinary, supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. God was confirming the preaching of the gospel. God was confirming this is the truth about me. What is being preached is the true gospel, and I'm proving that and demonstrating that and confirming that through the supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. When that happened, Peter was able to get up and preach to a crowd of thousands of people who witnessed this supernatural act of God confirming the gospel. And he preached the gospel. And what happened when he preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit worked to bring about the conviction of sin to many who heard the gospel preached on that day. And those who heard whom the Holy Spirit convicted were cut to the heart. We are sinners. They heard the gospel preached. The Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin. They were grieved. And they said, Peter, what must we do? In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In this passage, the command is for those who were baptized. And who was the command for? It was for those who repent and believe in Christ. When Jesus began his public ministry, we read in Mark chapter 1, Verse 15, that he said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The right response to the preaching of the gospel, the response that Christ commands for everyone who hears the gospel is to repent and believe. Repentance is where we turn from one thing, we turn away from one thing toward another thing. It is a completely, is it a complete and entire change of direction. It's going one way and saying, I'm no longer going to go this way. Instead, I am going this way. It is turning away from sin and turning toward God in Jesus Christ. Christ. And so we see that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. 
The right response to the gospel is to turn away from sin, to turn away from living for yourself, to turn away from being your own king, the ruler of your own life, to turning toward God in faith in Jesus Christ and saying, I submit myself wholly to you. It is a complete and utter change of direction. The right response to the gospel is not acknowledge Jesus and then continue to live your life the same way. Sadly, that's oftentimes how the gospel's presented. And brothers and sisters, we need to be clear on the response that Jesus commands for every person who hears the gospel. It is a complete and utter reorienting of your life, a complete and utter change of direction. It's going one way, stopping going one way, and going a completely different way. Repent and believe the gospel. And as I said, what is the other side of repentance? Faith. Repent and believe. So we see that those who repented of their sin as they were convicted by the Holy Spirit, because this is a work of God, repentance and faith are a work of God in the believer, in the life of a believer. We cannot do this in the flesh. It must be the work of the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit brought conviction and led those people to repent, we also see that baptism is linked with faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 and 27, Paul wrote, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. By faith, we have been united to Christ. Again, this is a work of God. God is the one who works this in us to, to bring about repentance and faith. But it is by faith that we are united to Christ. It is by faith that we have put on Christ. We have put off the old sinful self and we have put on Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Those who are baptized are those who have repented and believed, who have put on Christ by faith. Faith and baptism are inextricably linked. In Colossians 2.12, we read, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In baptism, we come up out of the waters signifying that we have been raised with Christ from the dead. And Paul says that this resurrection happens through faith. In the New Testament, baptism and belief cannot be separated. Baptism is for those who have repented and believed. For those who have put off, put off the old self and put on Christ by faith. Moreover, baptism dramatizes what God has done for us in salvation. Isn't it a wonderful, dramatic act? Someone going under the water and then being pulled back up out of the water? It is a wonderful picture. It is a wonderful drama. And what does it portray? What God has done for us in Christ Jesus. 
In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, we read, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we have died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Praise God. Praise God for the work that he has done for us in Christ Jesus, uniting us to Christ by faith in a death like his and in a resurrection like his. When we are united to Christ, we are united to him in his death, and his death becomes our death and that his punishment that he took is the punishment he took for our sins. He puts to death our sins and our sinful nature. And his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Just as he was raised, so, so too will we be raised. Just as he received a resurrected body, so too will we receive a resurrected body. Baptism beautifully portrays the glorious work of God in Christ Jesus that he has accomplished for us. When we are baptized, we go under the water and come up out of the water. We have been buried with Christ and we have been raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism wonderfully and beautifully dramatizes the glorious work of God in Christ Jesus. Baptism is for those who have repented and believed, who have been united to Christ by faith. Baptism is the act of a believer whereby he or she publicly identifies with the triune God and declares, I have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. I belong to Jesus. We also see that baptism is a sign of the new covenant. As we saw in the first sermon in this series, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord promised to establish a new covenant. In the Gospels, we see that the promise was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came and established the new covenant. And when Jesus gave the command to baptize in Matthew 28, he used covenantal language. He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be baptized into the name of the triune God is to identify oneself with God and his lordship. We see the significance of covenants all throughout Scripture. God graciously, mercifully enters into covenant relationships with his people, whereby he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's not obligated to do this. He's not obligated to enter into a covenant relationship whereby he commits himself to his people. Yet he does so because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And we see that Jesus came to establish this new covenant, a covenant whereby God commits himself to his people and his people commit themselves to him 
to obeying all that Christ has commanded. And what is the sign of this covenant? Baptism. To be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is to say, He is my God, and I belong to Him. And I promise to obey all that He has commanded. Baptism is the initiating sign of the new covenant. The new covenant community includes everyone who has been born again, repenting of their sins and believing in Christ. As we've already seen, this refers to the universal church. Everyone who has been born again has been added to the universal church by God. And everyone who has been added to the universal church is meant to join a specific local church where the universal church is made visible. And what constitutes a local church? The members. When we are united to Christ, we are united to his people. The two go hand in hand. To be added to the new covenant is to be included in the new covenant community. To identify self, oneself with Christ is to identify oneself with Christ's people. And Paul made this point in 1 Corinthians 12 where he seemed to slide back and forth between describing the universal church and the local church. In, verse, in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, he wrote, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Bobby Jameson writes, assuming there's at least a secondary reference to water baptism here, exactly what body were we baptized into? Verse 12 would seem to indicate the universal church. Yet the following discussion makes sense only in terms of a local church. That's where the feet and ears can be tempted to discouragement like we see in verses 14 to 20. It's where the eyes and heads can be tempted, hands can be tempted to pride and self-sufficiency. Verse 21, it's where we can give honor to the members who lack it. Verses 22 to 24, where we can care for one another, suffer together, rejoice together. Verses 25 to 26. And then Paul makes an even more specific reference to the local church, telling the church in Corinth, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Verse 27. So which is it, Paul? Universal or local? Yes, both. Paul can flip back and forth between the two because of the inseparable relation and distinction between them. He goes on, minimally then, under normal circumstances, baptism into the universal church necessarily entails membership in a local church. But we must go further. Where a local church exists, to be baptized is to be added to that church, as in Acts 2.41. Baptism is not just inseparable from local church membership, but coincident with it. Membership is the house. Baptism is the front door. Baptism is the initiating sign of the new covenant. To be initiated into the new covenant is to be added to the new covenant community. The new covenant community shows up or is made visible in local churches. 
So in baptism, the church declares this person belongs to Jesus and is a member of his new covenant community. And the believer declares, I belong to Jesus and his new covenant community. It is a wonderful way whereby we testify to the work of Christ in this wonderful, glorious new covenant. Next, we'll consider the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was also instituted by Jesus. We read about the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, we read this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with, with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus was eating the Passover meal with his disciples. We read about the institution of the Passover meal in the book of Exodus when God delivered his people from Pharaoh and Egypt and the oppression that they lived under. God spared them, and during the Passover, he passed over them when he brought about judgment he did not bring his judgment on his people who took refuge under the blood of the lamb which was painted on the doorposts of their house. The Lord passed over. And so the Passover meal served as a reminder of the redemption that the Lord achieved for his people in bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. As Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples, he said something surprising. He said the bread they ate represented his body and the cup they drank represented his blood. Moreover, his blood is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was pointing backward and he was pointing forward. He was pointing backward to what God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah. When the prophet Jeremiah described the new covenant, one of the things he said about the new covenant is, I, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God promised to forgive the sins of those who belong to the new covenant, to forgive all their sin. And so when Jesus spoke about his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of their sins, he was pointing back to this promise that God made through Jeremiah. And he was also pointing forward to his work on the cross. How would it be the case that God would forgive all the sins of his people who belong to the new covenant? Through the finished work of Christ on the cross, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. And this gets to the heart of the gospel. What is the heart of the gospel? The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? The gospel 
is the announcement of good news, epic good news. The good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. We are all sinners. We have all rejected God. God is our creator. He is our rightful king. He made us in his image to rule on his behalf. We were meant to honor him, to respect him, to obey him, to glorify him, to enjoy him, to rule the world on his behalf, and yet we've all rejected him as our God and king. Through our sin, we've all said no to God. And because we've all said no to God, because we've all sinned against him, because we've all rejected his rightful rule over our lives, we deserve punishment. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be cast into hell for all of eternity. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve. He provided a way by sending God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world as the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. He lived a life without sin, which we've all failed to do. And then he went to the cross as though he was a sinner, even though he wasn't. He willingly went to the cross and was executed, taking the punishment for the sins of his people in their place, whereby the wrath of God for our sins was poured out on Christ. He died as a substitute taking the punishment for our sin in our place. He died, he was buried, but then on the third day he rose again, conquering death. Through his resurrection, God demonstrated that he accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Christ was vindicated. And God said, this is the sacrifice that I accept on behalf of my people. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And after appearing to hundreds of people over the course of 40 days, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is now. The good news is that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ will be saved. Everyone who repents and believes will receive the forgiveness of all their sins, past, present, and future, will be reconciled to God, their loving Father, and will look forward to spending eternity, all eternity, with him in his glorious kingdom, where there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, We will enjoy being in his presence for all eternity. If you're not a Christian, our hope and our prayer for you is that you will hear the the good news and that you will respond in the way that Christ has commanded, that you will repent, that you will turn away from your sin, that you will place your faith in Jesus Christ. I urge you, repent, believe, and be saved. For those of us who are Christians. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful way that we dramatize what Christ has done for us. 
and his death and resurrection, his body broken, his blood which was shed. When you take the Lord's Supper, you not only declare that Christ died for the sins of his people, you declare Christ died for me. Wow. What a powerful, beautiful way we enact the reality that Christ's body was broken for me. Christ's blood was shed for me. I belong to Christ because he has saved me. While baptism is the initiation rite of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper is the ongoing covenant renewal ceremony. It's where we renew the covenant and renew our commitment to obey all that Christ has commanded. While baptism is a one-time act, a one-time act initiating a person into the new covenant, the Lord's Supper is that ongoing covenant renewal ceremony. Mark and Luke in their gospels record Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. When we take the Lord's Supper, when we take communion, we remember Christ. We remember his death. We remember his body broken, his blood shed. We remind ourselves of this good news in a very tangible way. What a wonderful, tangible reminder what Christ has done for us. The place where we find the most significant instruction regarding taking the Lord's Supper comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In God's wisdom and providence, the occasion for the instruction was a very bad example. Praise God for the bad example of the Corinthians, which the Lord used for our instruction and edification. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he addressed numerous problems in the life of this local church. One of them was the manner in which they took the Lord's Supper. We read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, which I will read now. Paul wrote, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, for a reference there, that's that word ecclesia, that word assembly, specific, uh, referring not to the universal church, but to a specific local church. When you, believers, come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, is, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you, have, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul was concerned about the divisions and factions within this local church. This was one of the problems he was addressing. I hear there are divisions among you. I I hear there are factions among you. Brothers and sisters, this is not good. I do not commend you for this. Jesus cares about the unity of the church. Read his prayer in John 17 as he faced his death on the cross. He prayed for unity in the church. Unity within the church, both universal and locally, is of utmost importance to Jesus. And they were not guarding and preserving and contending for the unity of the church. And one of the ways these divisions were exposed was the way they partook of the Lord's Supper. They used the occasion to make social distinctions between rich and poor. They were dividing rather than unifying, and apparently some were even getting drunk. It was a mess. And it would be easy to look at that example of what was happening in Corinth and say, nothing like that is happening here, praise the Lord. But even though that was, what was taking place in Corinth is not taking place here, we don't want to miss the important teaching and instructions on the Lord's Supper, which are critical for us and our own understanding and practice of the Lord's Supper. First, did you uh, notice his use of the phrase, when you come together? When Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, instructed the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper, he emphasized the church coming together. In these verses, he used the phrase, come together five times. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together as a church, when you assemble as brothers and sisters in Christ, this defined group of baptized believers, the Lord's Supper takes place when the church comes together. And what that means is that the Lord's Supper is not merely an individual meal. It is not meant to be taken as an individual private act of worship. Rather, we are to intentionally and consciously take the meal together. And do you see in verse 33 that Paul commanded the Corinthians to wait for one another before taking the meal? Wait for one another before you do this. Because you're meant to do this when you come together. And for whom were they to wait? Anyone who might show up? No, 
They were to wait for their fellow church members. They knew who they were as a church, as an assembly of believers. They were a defined group of baptized believers. And why was it important for them to wait for their fellow church members? Because the Lord's Supper is an act of the church which makes visible our unity in Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, where Paul wrote, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. We take the meal together as a symbol of our unity in Christ, which is why it is so important for us to pursue unity with those with whom we share the meal. The Lord's Supper is a visible demonstration of our unity of Christ, which we actively pursue as brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed and accountable to one another. We also see that the Lord's Supper is not meant to be taken lightly or in a casual manner. Again, in verse 27, we read, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, these verses can be taken in the wrong way. Someone with a sensitive conscience might take this to mean like, I, I sinned this week. I better not take the Lord's Supper. And that's not what these verses are saying. It's not saying that if you sinned, if you've messed up, that you cannot take the Lord's Supper. To be clear, the Lord's Supper is for sinners. And no sinner becomes worthy of the Lord's Supper by ceasing to sin. We come to the meal because we are sinners, aware of our sins and our need for forgiveness, which is only found in Christ. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a demonstration of God's grace and kindness toward us. We come because we are sinners in desperate need of forgiveness. At the same time, we do not want to take it lightly. If we are causing disunity within the church or walking in unrepentant sin, we are in danger of acting hypocritically when we take the Lord's Supper. So what are we to do? Examine ourselves and discern the body. We need to examine ourselves to see if there is any sin the Lord needs to address in our hearts and lives. Perhaps the Lord will convict us of sin and lead us to repent before we take the Lord's Supper again. That is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. That is a work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And what did Paul mean when he referred to discerning the body? Well, as we've seen, Paul referred to the church as one body in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Given the context and the point of the passage, it seems Paul was urging the believers in Corinth to discern the body in terms of their mindfulness and regard for one another. He exhorted them to reflect on how they were relating to one another and pursuing unity within the church. And what does that mean for us? We do well to take stock of our relationships with those around us when we take the Lord's Supper. Do we love and care for our brothers and sisters to whom we are committed? Do we have any conflict that needs to be resolved before taking the Lord's Supper? The need to discern the body is yet another reminder that the Lord's Supper is not a private act of worship, but an act of the whole congregation, 
where we display the unity that we are actively pursuing together. In summarizing the biblical teaching on the Lord's Supper, Bobby Jameson writes, the Lord's Supper is, an, is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. Finally, what is the connection between the ordinances and membership? While baptism, Lord's Supper, and membership have unique purposes and blessings, they also share a common purpose. They serve the purpose of distinguishing or marking off the new covenant community, which is the church. The church is meant to be distinct and set apart even while we are in the world. In our statement of faith, in our church's statement of faith, we say this. We believe that God's new covenant people have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. They are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. This universal church is manifest in local churches of which Christ is the only head. Thus, each local church is in fact the church, the household of God, the assembly of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the body of Christ, the apple of his eye, graven on his hands, and he has pledged himself to her forever. The church is distinguished by her gospel message, her sacred ordinances, her discipline, her great mission, and above all, by her love for God and by her members' love for one another and for the world. Did you notice that in our statement we talk about the way, the manner that the church is distinguished from the world? How is it that God's people, the church, the new covenant people are distinguished, set apart, marked off from the world even while we live in the world, not as a nation state, not with land borders, how, therefore, are we distinct? How are we set apart? How are we marked off? The gospel message, the gospel that we proclaim, our sacred ordinances, her discipline, which, of course, requires membership. Membership and discipline are two sides of the same coin. Her great mission, the great commission that Jesus has given the church, and above all, by her love for God and by her members' love for one another, and for the world. These things together are the way that Christ's people, the church, are set apart, are distinguished in the world. If we want to be distinct in this world, we hold these things together. We pursue these things together. In their book, Rediscovered Church, Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman write, what should be evident is that baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church membership belong together. Exceptions exist, yet ordinarily, churches baptize people into membership. And the Lord's Supper is a privilege of church members, whether at one's own church or when visiting another. After all, all three things work together to do the same thing, affirm and mark off the people of God. 
Together they declare to the nations of the earth, here are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is made visible in local churches, local assemblies. Local assemblies are outposts or embassies of Christ's kingdom. When we understand that the Lord calls his people to be distinct from the world, and that God's people are the church, and the invisible church becomes visible in local churches, and that Jesus intimately identifies himself with the church as the head of the church, and that he has commanded every believer to be committed and accountable to a local church, when we have a biblical understanding of sin, which teaches us that we all need that accountability, and it is good for our souls, when we understand all these things, believers should not only feel bound to join a church, but eagerly desire to do so. We honor and glorify Christ, who is the head of the church. Every believer should eagerly desire to become a member of a faithful, gospel-proclaiming church. This is how we follow Jesus. And baptism and the Lord's Supper are for those who trust in and follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are contending for Christ's design and purpose for the church so that we will glorify him, make strong disciples in a culture where it is becoming increasingly challenging to be a disciple of Jesus and to provide a compelling witness for our king and his kingdom in a community, in a culture that desperately needs a compelling gospel witness. May the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, use us to these ends. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the new covenant which you instituted and established in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that Jesus came into the world to save sinners such as us. We thank you that his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins, be reconciled to you and be included in your new covenant community. We pray that you would deepen our knowledge and our understanding of the church. We pray that you'd give us a hunger to know and to understand these things because as we do so, we know that we will glorify Jesus, the head of the church, that we will make stronger disciples, that we will provide a more compelling witness to our community, which desperately needs compelling witnesses for Jesus and his kingdom. Oh, would you give us a hunger, desire for this? Would you unite us in these things? May we be found faithful, we pray, to honor you, to glorify you. Use us to glorify Christ, to make strong disciples, to provide a compelling witness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.